Hello, welcome to the Quest Podcasts. My name is Alan Mulhan. We continue our examination of Gnosticism, looking at the material more closely. Firstly, the intriguing Sophia myth, various versions of it we'll look at, and also the extraordinary radical dualism of Manichaean mythology. I shall offer a psychological interpretation of both of them in the next podcast. The diversity of Gnostic sects has been stressed. There are scores of them. Broadly speaking, following Jonas, we split them between the East and the West. That is in the West on the coast of the Mediterranean, Syria down to Alexandria in Egypt. And in the East, the Persian or Manichaean camp, whose influence stretched actually all the way to China. Some of their mythology in particular has caught the contemporary ear since it resonates with concerns of our own age. For example, the position of Sophia, that is the role of the feminine. The downgrading of Yahweh in the hierarchy of the heavens, which in the modern world some take as a downgrading of the patriarchy. Also the Gnostic stress on revelation and knowledge rather than faith, which is of course a downgrading of Christianity, which stresses faith. There was great diversity then in the Gnostic groups in the first centuries of the Common Era. Finding consistency of doctrine among them is difficult. They did not have the centralising tendency of the Catholic Church. The myth of Sophia plays a varying role in different Gnostic sects. Let's look at a few. Jonas in the Gnostic religion tells of the Sethians, for example. I paraphrase. The unknown god emanates the aeons, which are a series of paired male and female beings, or syzygies. The eons that result are representative of the various attributes of God, and together they constitute the spiritual universe, or the pleroma. In some versions, the aeon Sophia imitates God's actions, performing an emanation of her own, resulting in a crisis within the pleroma, as it were a feminist challenge within the hierarchy. And this leads eventually to the appearance of the Demiurge, who creates this world. This being is at first hidden by Sophia, but subsequently escapes, stealing a portion of divine power from her, with which he creates a material world in imitation of the divine Pleroma. To complete the task, he spawns a group of entities collectively known as Archons, who are petty tyrants of the physical world also guarding the planetary spheres surrounding the earth like a prison. The Sethian mythology next intermingles with the Judaic, that is the Old Testament, with the Demiurge and his archons being the creator, as it were, Yahweh. As in Genesis, the Demiurge declares himself to be the only God. Similar to Genesis, he creates Adam and unconsciously puts the power he stole from Sophia into the human body. He attempts to rape Eve, who now contains Sophia's divine power. Sophia's spirit transplants itself into the tree of knowledge. Adam and Eve are then tempted by the serpent and eat of the forbidden fruit, thereby once more regaining the power that the Demiurge had stolen. Using perhaps a similar version from another Gnostic sect, Lance Owens in his lecture Search for Roots, relates, 
in classic Gnostic mythology, Sophia, wisdom, was a feminine aeon, a twin archetype or syzygy of the masculine Logos. She is the feminine aspect of divinity in dwelling creation. Much like the anima mundi of our chemical myth, Sophia is present within the very tissue of the cosmos and consciousness. In the Gnostic drama of creation, an abortive emanation has separated from Sophia soon after her entry into the depths of the coming cosmos. This defective child grew into a fiery cosmic force that falsely claims to be the singular and supreme deity. As self-declared ruler of the material world, he sought to hold humanity in his thraldom. This was the Demiurge. In this ancient and oft-restated Gnostic myth, Lansowen continues, Sophia becomes the opponent of the Demiurge, who is her offspring. She was the higher power who awakened in humankind knowledge of their intrinsic inner light and origin, thereby liberating them from the deceitful worldly lordship of the Demiurge. Hans Jonas, in Chapter 8 of the Gnostic Religion, speaking of the Valentinian speculation, remember Valentinus was the founder of a school, was born in Egypt and educated in Alexandria, and taught in Rome between about 135 to 160 AD. In the Pleroma, once again, there are this time 30 aeons in 15 pairs. The last female aeon in the chain of emanations is Sophia. I paraphrase, there is, however, a crisis in the Pleroma, since some wish to know more than their limits permit. The last and youngest, and therefore outermost of the aeons, the Sophia, leapt farthest forward and fell into a passion with the embrace of her consort. Sophia went out of her mind, supposedly from love, but actually from folly and error, since, separating from the Pleroma, she entered into great agony on account of the depth of the abyss. This is like a young girl leaving her family and becoming pregnant or entering into a relationship and losing sight of where she came from and falling from the height into a depression. Moreover, she gave birth to a formless entity, an objectification of her own passion, and at the sight of it, and reflecting upon her fate, she is moved by varying emotions, grief, fear, bewilderment, shock and repentance. Anguish became dense like a fog. Error became fortified and it elaborated its own matter in the void. It's another view of the creation of the world, the creation of matter, as a result of this strange birth or even abortion. Sophia is full of grief and disturbs the aeons with her sighs. She seeks after the vanished light but cannot reach it because of her admixture or commingling of the original passion and forced to remain alone in the outer darkness. She falls prey to every kind of suffering that exists. This substance that is created is nothing else than a self-estranged and sunken form of the spirit with emotions. For example, grief, because she could not get hold of the light. Fear, lest besides the light also life might leave her. 
bewilderment added to these, and all of them united in the basic quality of ignorance, and then the turning or conversion towards the giver of life. This is the wonderful story of the redemption of Sophia. Jesus the Saviour was eventually sent to cure her of her passions, from which she suffered, and to bring about the redemption of Sophia. But in doing this, the Saviour potentially brings on, that is, makes possible, the creation of the Demiurge in this version. Notice that all these different versions of different types of stories concerning Sophia and the Demiurge, they're all similar though. Two types of substance originated, the bad from the passions and the good from the turning back or conversion, which is the soul. This is the origin of the pneumatic element in the lower world, the spirit element. Three essences, Jonas concludes, originated from the experience of Sophia, from her passion, matter, and from her turning back. Out of the physical substance, Sophia creates the king of all things outside the Pleroma, the Demiurge. These extraordinary, elaborate accounts of the creation of this world. I've never read anything like it in any other creation myth. They are extreme, radical, sometimes revolting, always fascinating, and have a psychological corollary. Another account, this one will be a lot shorter, is from the Pistis Sophia, which was available prior to the Nag Hammadi findings in 1945. Sophia's fall and restoration dominates most of the books of this codex, books one and two. She dwells in the 13th aeon again and is tricked into leaving her aeon and ascends into chaos, has her light power stolen and is not allowed to return to her place unless Jesus ascends through the aeons. She recites many repentances and prayers and is repeatedly persecuted by wicked archons before being allowed to wait just outside of the 13th aeon for restoration. So there's a few stories of the Sophia coming from different Gnostic sects. They're all quite similar. Um, they all involve Sophia either well in the Pleroma or on the outskirts of the Pleroma, some original fault or error on her part or attempting something that was supposed to be the privilege of the Supreme God. Rather like the stories of Milton's Paradise Lost, actually, where Lucifer wishes to outshine God. And from that, the cosmology leading to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, and the creation of this world come about. That's a very Gnostic myth, except that the Gnostics would have taken Sophia instead of Lucifer. But, of course, for the patriarchies, these, that is, Sophia and Lucifer, become quite similar. Such stories are fascinating to the modern era because after the long millennia of the patriarchy, the re-evaluation of the feminine comes about, and therefore the ear picks up from ancient mythologies stories which have been buried over time, buried by the patriarchal religions, actually. And the time has come for reincorporation, restitution, uh, for Sophia to come back into the Pleroma and to be reinstated. And very importantly, notice the inversion in the Gnostic mythology of the role of Lucifer or the supposedly dark force. 
Lucifer means the carrier of light, the bringer of light. And for the Gnostics, it is Lucifer who challenges the god Yabaleth, as they sometimes called him, or Yahweh in the Old Testament. This is the Judaic god, which the Gnostics were consistently against. Rather like Blake, actually, who points to the limits of the Demiurge. The Demiurge is the creator of this world, that is in Judaic mythology, Yahweh. Adam and Eve are, as it were, in the captive power of Yahweh. But it is Lucifer who opens the eyes of Adam and Eve, offering them the fruit of the tree of knowledge. You will become as gods, he says. So he is offering them knowledge, gnosis, cosmic vision, and opens their eyes. But thereafter, they lose this vision, as happens so frequently in those who have access to transcendental vision and can lose it. We can see, therefore, how the Gnostic myths are interweaving with the Judaic myths, and therefore they go back a long time into the Kabbalah, go back long before the 1st and 2nd centuries AD when they are commonly dated, and interweave with the religions of the Near East and of Egypt. Gnostics were rarely modest. Mani was the originator of the Manichaean religion, which developed in Persia and spread all the way to Spain in the west and to China in the east. Mani's dates are the 3rd century of the Common Era, that is the 200s AD. Here he is speaking of his revelation, his gnosis. Quote, the living paraclete came down and spoke to me. He revealed to me the hidden mystery that was hidden from the worlds and generations. The mystery of the depth and the height. The mystery of the light and the darkness. The mystery of the conflict and the great war which the darkness stirred up. He revealed to me how the light turned back the darkness by their intermingling and how in consequence was set up this world. He enlightened me on the mystery of the forming of Adam, the first man. He instructed me on the mystery of the tree of knowledge, of which Adam ate, by which his eyes were made to see. The mystery of the apostles who were sent out into the world to select the churches. Thus was revealed to me by the paraclete all that has been and that shall be, and all that the eye sees and the ear hears and the thought thinks. Through him I learnt to know everything. I saw the all through him, and I became one body and one spirit. Unquote. In the pretemporal cosmos, there were two forces, one good and the other evil, both separated from each other. The good dwelt in the light, and its god was called the father of greatness. He had his five shekinahs, intelligence, knowledge, thought, liberation, resolution. The evil force was called the king of darkness, and he lived in the land of darkness, surrounded by smoke, fire, wind, water, and darkness. These two realms bordered on each other, with no firm division between them. The darkness was personified as Ariman, and the movements of this realm are those of disorderly motion. What it longs for is evil lust, and its powers are symbolised in the dark, consuming fire. This matter is not passive, 
but is the first active principle of these two forces. The two realms have existed forever in the past. They have no origin. They are in themselves the origins of everything. They exist unconnected, but the darkness rages within itself. This is the beginning, the conflict, the movement. And this movement of the dark forces the light to give up its passivity and engage in a primal battle. Darkness reaches the outer limits of its realm and with its internal warfare in which the evil passions of its members were continually engaged in hate and strife until they reached the borders of their realm and saw the light and they were struck with wonder at how glorious and how far superior it was to their own realm. They assembled all the forces of darkness and plotted how they could mix with the light. They did not initially see the father of light in the midst of this pleroma. With lust and madness they invaded the realm of the pleroma. This perception of the light excites in darkness envy, greed and hate and provokes aggression. At first the attack is wild and chaotic. Then it develops a cunning intelligence, particularly in the creation of mankind and the device of sexual reproduction. The hate is paradoxically mixed with the recognition and desire for the superior realm of the pleroma, which it envies. So the hate is at the same time self-hate. Its attack, therefore, is built on resentment. This creates a response in the realm of light. The king of darkness says, quote, If there is such a world as the pleroma, what to me is this habitation of darkness where I am? I will rise to that luminous realm, make war on it, until I am one of them. This created fear among the Shekinahs, these emanations of the father of greatness. He initially thought of sending them into battle against the darkness, but decided he had to go, as it were, himself, or send someone very close to him, since he had not created the Shekinahs for the purposes of war. So he had a special creation representing himself. This is the Gnostic principle of emanation, which here is provoked by external attack, rather than something which is produced internally, which is the case in other Gnostic mythologies. This is produced by the reaction to the attack of darkness. The Father of Greatness calls the Mother of Life, who calls forth, as it were, creates the primal man, who calls forth his five sons, and he goes like a man who girds on his armour for battle. And the primal man, armed with the five kinds, the light breeze, the wind, the light, the water and the fire, made them his armour and plunged rapidly from the paradise downwards until he came to the border of an area adjoining the battlefield. Before him advanced an angel who spread light ahead of the primal man. These quotes from the Manichaean literature show the archetypes which dominate human consciousness. And here they're presented in mythological form. But you can see how almost cinematic these images are. How vivid, poetic, strikingly dramatic. Certain films of the modern era partake of the Gnostic mythology. Star Wars, for example, very Manichaean with the 
primal division between the forces of dark and light, good and evil, creation and destruction, or some versions of the Superman myth whereby a child is saved from another planet, its destruction and is sent down to Earth and has to battle against evil. This is a version of the messenger or the saviour myth, the divine child coming from the Pleroma, growing up in this world and having to fight the forces of evil and sometimes being defeated. This first creation, Primal Man, is a central attempt at salvation of the system. It attempts to preserve the peace of the worlds of light. But the Primal Man is defeated by the King of Darkness in a long battle who gave himself and his five sons as food to the five sons of darkness. This food acts like a poison or a deterring effect upon the forces of darkness, thus slowing them down. But at the same time, surrender of the sons of light into the darkness, and there is a mingling, a commingling of light and darkness. Thus the five parts of light become mixed with the five parts of darkness, while this averts the immediate threat to the realm of light, it has essentially allowed the capture of parts of the realm of light into the realm of darkness. This leads to the second creation, which is that of the living spirit. So the primal man regains consciousness after the battle and prayed to the father, who sent the living spirit and his five sons. They're very fond of the figure five. They went to the land of darkness and from the boundary looked down into the abyss of the deep hell and found the primal man swallowed up in the darkness with his five sons. And the living spirit called. Remember Gnosticism is the religion of the call. The living spirit called with a loud voice which was like a sharp sword and laid bare the form of primal man. And the living spirit says, Peace be unto thee. Good one amidst the wicked, luminous one amidst the darkness. Thereupon Primal Man answered, Come for the peace of him who is dead. How is it in the realm of light above? And the call, that is the living spirit, said to him, It is well in the realm of light. And call and answer joined each other. And the Primal Man was freed from his hellish imprisonment by the living spirit who descended and extended him his right hand and brought him up to the realm of light again. But behind was left the soul, for these parts of the light were too thoroughly mixed with the darkness to be rescued. Certain films of the modern era partake of the Gnostic mythology. Star Wars, for example, very Manichaean with the primal division between the forces of dark and light, good and evil, creation and destruction, or some versions of the Superman myth whereby a child is saved from another planet, its destruction and is sent down to Earth and has to battle against evil. This is a version of the messenger or the saviour myth, the divine child coming from the Pleroma growing up in this world and having to fight the forces of evil and sometimes being defeated. Again note the intense visual effects of these images. Had the Christians not triumphed, 
the paintings of the European Middle Ages would not have been saturated with images of the crucified Christ or the Virgin Mary and Child, but might have had instead Gnostic images such as those of the above, which could have captured the imagination of the artists, since these images are also representative of the consciousness of an entire epoch. Soul, then, is lost to matter, and to rescue this soul, the cosmos now has to be created, which is essentially a great mechanism for the separation of the light from the darkness. This rescue, in a sense, of primal man by the living spirit is, for the Manichaeans, equivalent to the resurrection of Christ for the Christians and is the guarantee of future salvation. This second creation, the living spirit and his entourage of gods, now separate the mixture from the main mass of darkness and the father of greatness, the king of light, ordered him to create the present world and to build it out of these mixed parts of light and dark so that the light parts could be separated from the dark and therefore the archons who had incorporated the light the five sons of primal man were offered as food these archons who had incorporated this food this light out of their carcasses and skins the heavens and earth are made and therefore have a demonic life of their own. So nature is made from the impure, dead bodies of the powers of evil, which are still magically alive in some way, so that the world is an embodiment of the king of darkness. It is also a prison for the powers of darkness. That part of the light which is the least embodied in the darkness is extracted from the realm of matter, purified into the light and the purest parts form the sun and moon and the stars. The planets, however, belong to the Archons. And these circle the earth and are part of the entrapment of mankind. The stars, therefore, are the remnants of the soul. By this means, a small portion of the light is saved, but the rest is still imprisoned. This provokes a third creation, which is the messenger. So as only a small portion of the light has been rescued, a messenger is sent with 12 virgins who set up an engine of 12 buckets in a great circle. And they go to the ships of light and set them in motion and start a revolution of the spheres, which becomes a vehicle for the cosmic process of salvation, since it functions as a mechanism for the separation and upward transportation of the light which had been entrapped in nature. There is therefore a continued battle between darkness and light, an attempt to purify it, but the darkness is always fighting back. So in response to this third creation and the power of the messenger, the king of darkness is inspired with an idea of, of keeping the light that it has captured, and wishes to create something equal to the vision of the pleroma, and therefore creates mankind, in which there are particles of light. But Adam and Eve are essentially the production of Ariman, of the king of darkness. And the light which is left in the earth, which hasn't been taken back to the Pleroma, is put into Adam and Eve, and by their sexuality and reproduction, the light is dispersed throughout all of humanity, but embodied in darkness, making it much more difficult for it to be rescued. 
And so the primal battle goes on, in which the next mission from the Pleroma is that of the luminous Jesus, who comes to persuade Adam and Eve that they should not take notice of Ariman and their God. And he comes in the form of a serpent and wishes to open their eyes by eating the tree of knowledge. This third mission of Jesus to Adam and Eve is subsequently protracted into the history of mankind, since the emanations of the messenger are experienced as incarnations in religion. Thus Manly himself had his vision from the paraclete, and he is in this continual tradition. With regard to the morality of the Gnostics, it's true that some of them were libertine, that is, regarding themselves as outside of the law. But for the most part, they were ascetic in the extreme, having strong beliefs in abstention from sex and reproduction, a form of quietism by which they moved very little or didn't even brush their hand through the air. This was probably influenced by the Orient and Jainism and Buddhism. By moving, they were actually destroying the remaining light that was left in the world. Particles of light, as it were, were being damaged. In general, they regarded the world as evil and something to be negated and distrusted in the extreme. Some of them wouldn't even build a house. So they had an extreme anti-world and anti-cosmic position, even more than the Christians. Their standard confession was, My Lord, we are full of defects and sins. We are deep in guilt. Because of the insatiable, shameless demon of greed, we always and incessantly in thought, word and deed, and in seeing with our eyes, in hearing with our ears, in speaking with our mouths, in grasping with our hands and in walking with our feet, torment the light of the five gods. Unquote. That is the five gods who had been entrapped in the world and formed its substance. If you remember when the primal man was defeated and the five sons were devoured by the five sons of darkness. As it were, there's a continual damaging of the, of the remaining light in the world. Their position in this respect was equivalent to the extremes of medieval Christianity with its belief that the slightest thought that was lustful or avaricious or angry was a sin and Jesus Christ suffered and God suffered because of these sins. Manichaeism had a doctrine of last things and the history of the world and of mankind is a continual process as we've seen of the freeing of the light. It's salvationist theme. In this respect again it resembles Christianity. Instruments of salvation are the cause of the apostles, the founders of churches, with their effect of awakening, instruction and sanctification. Again, quite close to Christianity. The universe's instrument of salvation is the cosmic revolution, especially that of the sun. And here they differ from Christianity, because for the Christians it was Jesus Christ and the sacraments and being initiated into the church to baptism and confession and Eucharist and so on. That guaranteed the path to heaven, salvation. But for the Gnostics there was this powerful imagery of the sun circling in the heavens, collecting with its rays the members of light. That is, the sun automatically as a process of nature extracts and purifies light out of matter and like a ship transports it on the wheel of the zodiac whose rotation brings it to the world of light. Here we see a remarkable similarity to Taoism, particularly the secret of the golden flower, 
whereby the circulation of the light and the expulsion of the slag of darkness is visualized as a process of energy moving through the body in a circular motion. Jonas comments that the liberation, separation and raising up of parts of the light is helped by the praise, sanctification, the pure word and pious works. In this manner, the ship or the ferry is loaded up again and again and the sun transmits the light to the light above, to the pleroma, where this worldly light reaches the ultimate light. The sun continues to do this until nothing of the parts of light are left in the world, but only a small part is left, that the sun and the moon cannot detach this part of the light. Jonas comments, there is something undeniably grandiose in this cosmic vision, and the image of the moon waxing and waning with a freight of souls and of the sun continually separating out and refining divine light of a zodiac like a water wheel ceaselessly scooping and transporting upwards. This has a fascinating quality about it and that it gives to the order of the universe a religious meaning. He goes on, thus in the sequence of times, of calls and of revolutions, all parts of light ascend incessantly and mount up to the height and the parts of darkness incessantly descend and sink down into the depths until the one are freed from the other and the mixture is nullified and the compounds dissolved and each has come to its whole and to its world. And this is the resurrection. When this has been completed down to that most closely mingled remainder, the messenger manifests his image and the angel who supports the earth throws off his burden and the great fire from outside the cosmos breaks out and consumes the whole world and does not cease to burn until what light still remains in the creation is released." Unquote. Actually, it sounds rather like the expansion of the sun into a red dwarf and consuming the earth in conflagration. There are some strange overlaps between mythological symbolism at its extreme and modern science. This is just one example among many. At the end, when the cosmos is dissolved, quote, this same thought of life shall gather himself in and shall form his soul. He shall catch the light and the life that is in all things and build it into his own body. The living spirit will come. He will be the light. Thus the two natures are restored and the archons shall henceforth dwell in the nether regions. But the father in the upper regions abides after he has taken back unto himself his own. The real idea is that the turmoil of the beginning now lies in deathly stillness. By a long route, the initial sacrifice of the light, that it has found its reward and achieved its goal, and the light is henceforth safe from the darkness and from injury by it.